The following message was recorded at Shades Valley Community Church in Homewood, Alabama. For more information and resources from Shades Valley, please visit us at shadesvalley.org. Today's scripture reading is from Psalm, Psalm 119, verses 89 to 91. Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Your faithfulness endures to all generations. You have established the earth, and it stands fast. By your appointment, they stand this day, for all things are your servants. This is the word of the Lord. So, Father, we ask that you would open our eyes to behold wondrous things out of your word, And that supremely we would behold more of your glory in the face of your son, Jesus. Do this by the power of your spirit as you've promised to do. We love you. We pray these things in your name. Amen. If you hadn't had a chance yet, I do invite you to open your Bibles to Psalm 119, verse 89. Um, So when, when I get the chance to have conversations with people who aren't believers... Uh, and we start talking about Scripture, uh, I hear all sorts of reasons that they reject the idea of Scripture as the Word of God, reasons that they reject the, the Christian faith. But typically there are two reasons that are kind of the most common that, that, that come to the surface. And it, these two reasons are very interesting to me because I often hear them from the same people, and these two reasons contradict one another. Uh, see if you can see what I'm saying right here. So, so... Reason number one or objection number one that I hear is typically some version of the problem of evil. So Jonathan, you believe in a God who has all power and is all good. So why is evil even a thing? If he's got all power, then he can stop evil. If he's good, then he would stop evil. So kind of in a catch 22 here, Jonathan, that's objection one. Objection number two is the problem of wrath. So this is where they'll go to specific places in scripture and they'll reference things like flood in Genesis 6 through 9 or the conquest of Canaan throughout the book of Joshua or things like the doctrine of hell. And they'll reference these places where we see the wrath of God poured out and they'll talk about how this just seems unjust or cruel. That's objection number two. Do you see how these objections contradict one another? Like on the one hand, why doesn't God do something about evil? On the other hand, I don't like it when God does something about evil. Like, and I hear people argue this way all the time. And my question is why? Do they simply not see how those things are contradictory or do they not care? And and in most of those conversations, if I push a little bit, I think that most of the time they don't care. Because if you push, it's not really about the objections, it's about a rejection. It's it's about a rejection of what? Of authority. Uh, It's a rejection of the Bible's claim on me. Often, people don't care if their objections to the Bible make sense. They just want to pull out whatever argument will disarm the Bible the quickest and let them reject it. Because they know. We know the Bible claims authority. It claims to be God's word. And so... It claims to have authority over everything, and that includes authority over me. And I want to live how I want to live, and so I want to do whatever I can to reject this authoritative claim, just like I want to reject all others. And the question for each of us this morning is like, how about you? 
Like, do you reject the authority of this word? I hope throughout our series that we've been doing uh, in the season of Lent, I hope that everything that we've seen so far makes it really hard to do that. So we're in a series simply entitled, Not by Bread Alone, and we're just looking at what we believe about this book, why we believe it, so that we might live by it. And I hope that everything we've seen about this book so far makes it really hard to reject the authority of this book. What, what have we seen? We've taken a deep look at the reliability of this word, that it really can be trusted to be God's word. Last week, we took a, a look at the clarity of this word, that it can be understood. If you take those two things and you put them together, if this is God's word and it can be understood, all of a sudden it's making an authoritative claim, one that we should not arrogantly reject but humbly submit to. And not begrudgingly, like as soon as I frame it that way, we shouldn't reject the authority of God's word, but humbly submit to it. We're like, fine, Jonathan backed us into a corner. I guess as reliable as the word of God, it's clear it's able to be understood, so I've just got to submit my life to it. That is not how submitting to the authority of scripture is envisioned anywhere in the Bible. This is not an authority that we submit to begrudgingly, but joyfully. We see all of this unfolding for us right here in Psalm 119 through the psalmist. Read with me. Look at verse 89. Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. What, is that? what does that mean? The psalmist says God's word is firmly fixed in the heavens, in the skies. It's, it's a poetic, we're dealing with poetry right here, it's a poetic way of saying creation like the stars. Creation bears witness to the word of God. Why? Because by God's word, it was made. By his word, he fixed the stars in the heavens and put them on their courses. When you see those stars doing what they were made to do, you are seeing the authority of God's word. You're seeing the stars themselves literally obey God's word. That's precisely what the psalmist goes on to say about the whole of creation. Look at verse 90. Your faithfulness endures to all generations. You have established the earth and it stands fast. By your appointment, they stand to this day for all things are your servants. Psalmist says, when I look at creation, all of it, the earth, the heavens, I see your servants obeying your word. They stand to this day. It still works. It still operates. Everything that we would refer to as a law of nature is really just an observation of God's habits saying it all stands because it is humbly submitting to the authority of your word. So, beloved, we dare not arrogantly reject God's word because it claims authority over all things, not just creation, but us as a part of creation. It claims authority over us. We dare not arrogantly reject God's word, but humbly submit to its authority along with the rest of creation and not begrudgingly, but joyfully. That's the very next thing the psalmist says. Look at verse 92. If your law had not been my delight, 
my delight, my joy. If your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. I will never forget your precepts. Why? For by them you have given me life. You see what's going on here? The the psalmist submits to the word of God, and he does so joyfully because he knows not only its authority, but he knows that authority is aimed at his ultimate good, true life. Is that not what he says? By your word. It gives me life. I've been given life by your word. All of your authority that you have, all of your power, all of your wisdom, all of it you are aiming at and working for my good to give me life. Shades, I want us this morning to see and believe the same thing as the psalmist. I want us to see the word's authority and and I, I want us to see that authority is aimed at our ultimate good. Let's see this together by walking through four truths. Four truths about the authority of the word. Number one, the word is not the only authority. Truth number one about the authority of the word, the word is not the only authority. In other words, you've got lots of authorities in your life. We all do. Bosses, government, Teachers, parents, church leaders, the list could go on and on and on. We've got lots of different sources of authority in our life. And many of the authorities that I just listed, Scripture itself affirms as good sources of authority. Uh, Exodus 20, verse 12, says that we should honor our parents. Romans 13, verse 1, says that we should submit to governing officials. 1 Peter 5 tells us that we should respect church elders. Like, like we have many different authorities that scripture itself affirms as good. It even affirms that there are other sources of authority that can teach us truth about God. And I just, I just named a, a couple of people who can teach us truths about God. For some of us, maybe our parents poured into us truths about God, teachers, preachers, authors. Scripture not only affirms that there are teachers or or human authorities that can teach us truth about God. It also affirms that creation itself can in its own way authoritatively teach us truth about God. Just read Romans 1. Romans 1 and verse 20 says that God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. You look around at creation And it can speak to you truths about its creator. Psalmist says the same thing. Psalm 19, verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God. Sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. This this is something, so creation revealing truth about God. This is something that in theological terms we call general revelation. In other words, creation reveals reveals general truths about who God is, what he's like. What, What are some truths that you might learn about who God is and what he is like just from looking at creation? Not a rhetorical question. What are some truths? 
Sun comes up, meaning faithfulness. Sun comes up every day. It's a display of the faithfulness of the creator. Yeah. Creative. Yeah, there's a heck of a lot of variety. We don't have to look beyond uh, some of our own family members to see how creative the Lord can be. <laughs> Expansiveness. Yeah, absolutely. Order. He's a God of order. Yeah, there are all sorts of general truths that we could go through. We could talk about how powerful he is, how big he is, all of these kinds of different things. But if all we do is look at creation in order to learn truths about who God is and what he is like, we could also come to some wrong conclusions. We might come to the conclusion that God is cruel. There's a lot of things that happen within creation that are horrendous. We might come to the conclusion that God is capricious, sadistic even. Creation can teach us some truths about God, but it can also mislead us. The same thing is true when we start talking about human authorities. Human authorities in our lives can teach us truths about God. They can also mislead us. When we, when we step back and we look at that, so yes, the word of God it is true, the word of God is not the only authority in our life. There's all of these other authorities. But when you look at all of those different authorities, the question becomes, which one is ultimate? Which one is the ultimate authority by which all other authorities are measured? And this leads us to truth number two. The word is the ultimate or final authority. The word is the final authority. It's not the only one but it is the ultimate or the final one, meaning it's the standard, it's the measure by which everything else is, is measured. Everybody want a fun Latin phrase that you can drop at all of your parties in order to sound fun and smart? Uh, scripture is the norma normans non normata. That one's fun, isn't it? It, it makes just as much sense in English. It means it's the norm of norms that cannot be normed. In other words, it's the standard. It's the measure by which every other source of knowledge, truth, and all of that must be measured against. And it itself is not measured against anything. In, in other words, take the authorities that we were just talking about and walking through, and let's, let's bring them into contradiction with the word of God. So if we talk about government, if the government compels us to do something that is not in accordance with God's word, which one's the final authority? I'm, I'm going to go with Peter and the apostles in Acts chapter 5. When they get told by the governing authorities that they can't preach the gospel anymore, they respond, we must obey God rather than men. Yeah, we're going to obey Romans 13.1 and submit to governing authorities, but when you come into contradiction with the final authority, that's the norm, and you don't get to norm it. It's the measure. Uh, not just governing authorities, uh, think about uh, teachers. Anyone ever been misled by a teacher, preacher, a pastor, an author, someone that you looked up to and, and respected? If any teacher acts wickedly and tries to lead you into sin, Jesus himself says, uh-uh, you don't follow them. Matthew chapter 7 and verse 15, beware of false prophets who come to you as wolves in sheep's clothing. 
You'll recognize them by their fruits. You're to measure them against an external authority, the authority of God's word. The word will always be my final authority. And not just with human authorities, but even with creation itself. Like even when it comes to learning about God through creation, if you try to know God only through creation, only through general revelation, you will end up going astray into idolatry every time. Every single time. Just read the rest of Romans chapter one, the very place that tells us creation reveals truth about God. It goes on to talk about how sin darkens our hearts so that we end up putting our focus on creation itself rather than the creator and we fall into idolatry. This is because when we look at all these other authorities, we need an ultimate authority, an authority that stands outside of all others, that is the final authority. We need an authority that can help us to interpret everything else we see, experience that comes at us correctly. In other words, we don't just need general revelation, we need special revelation. God to specifically speak to us that reveals specific truths about who he is and what he is like. And he has done that in his word. The word is our final authority. The, the scripture's like, it's, it's like a pair of glasses. It's like a pair of glasses through which we see all other authorities in our lives clearly. So creation. When we look at creation through the lens of this word, then we can clearly see accurately the truths that creation teaches us about God. When we look at teachers and preachers through the lens of this word, measuring everything they say. Never take my word for anything. Measure it by this word. My job is not to give you Jonathan's life hacks on how to live. Like my job is to open up this book and expose what it says. That's why I that's so why I practice expository preaching, preaching that aims to expose the word. Expository preaching means I don't just say things to you, I wanna show them to you. And if you can't see what I'm saying here, it's got no authority. Because I have no authority inherent in myself. God's word has authority. And anything I say is only authoritative insofar as it aligns with what he says. Scripture's the pair of glasses through which we see human authorities. Shades the word of God. It is not the only authority, but it is the final authority. Isaiah 40 in verse 8 says, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Interesting thing about that verse is the part that nobody knows anything about, which is what does it mean by the grass and the flowers? Go back, read Isaiah 40. Right before verse eight, it's talking about people or grass and all of their beauty, their glory, all of their wisdom are flowers. Now do you see what verse eight is saying? Every other source of human authority you've got in your life it will pass away, and all of the wisdom that it supposedly was able to bring will fade, but the word of God will stand forever. It's the final authority even over human authorities. Jesus says something similar, but instead of going after human authorities, he goes after creation. 
Matthew chapter 24 and verse 35. Heaven and earth will pass away. That's a way of saying all of creation. But my words will not pass away. It doesn't matter what other authority we're talking about in our life. The word is the final authority. Jesus lives this way. Like watch him throughout scripture appeal to scripture as the final authority. Go, go read John chapter 10, verse 35. Jesus appeals to the Psalms as the final authority, saying the scripture cannot be broken. Watch how he does it. He appeals to the Psalms' use of a singular word. Like in other words, he's not just saying scripture's the final authority in a general way because it reveals generally truths about God. He goes, no, down to the words it uses. Go see the Apostle Paul do this in Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 16, the Apostle Paul appeals to Scripture as his final authority. The argument that he's making is rooted in whether or not a word is singular or plural. He's saying this is God's authoritative word, not just down to the individual words, but down to whether or not they're singular or plural. Jesus appeals to the word as the final authority. Paul appeals to the word as the final authority. Throughout our journey, in Psalm 119, we've seen the psalmist consistently appeal to the word as his final authority. That, that theme runs throughout scripture from beginning to end. From beginning, Genesis 1, God creates by his word and all of creation obeys. It's the authority of the word. All the way to the end, Revelation chapter 22. Go read it. It ends with an appeal that we would know that God's word is trustworthy and true and that it is the ultimate authority for all of human history. The word is the final authority. And Shades, it's our authority. Not just ours. Everybody's. That, that takes us to truth number three. The word is everyone's authority. The word is everyone's authority. Everybody trusts in authority. Everybody. It's a fun, so is that a Southern thing? Are we the only ones that do that? Or does everybody do that? I don't know, it doesn't matter, it's still fun. Everybody trusts in an authority. Even those who reject scripture, they just substitute another authority in its place. So some people might say, I, I reject the Bible because I trust in the authority of science. So that would be a fun conversation for us to have, talking about the authority of science. Let's grab coffee if you want to talk through some of that. But my question for people in that situation is usually, are you actually trusting in the authority of science? Or are you trusting in the authority of scientists and their current interpretation of the data? Aren't you just trusting in a different authority? Or you get people that are like, well, I reject the Bible because I trust in the, uh, the authority of philosophy, human reason. And I, I met this great atheist who was able to give me this perfect argument that proves that God doesn't exist. So I trust in the authority of philosophy. Are you really trusting in the authority of philosophy? Or are you just trusting in that authoritative atheist? who will no longer be your authority the moment you meet someone smarter who can demolish his or her arguments. Or 
I often even meet people who, who claim to be Christians. They claim faith, but they reject a, a ton of what Scripture has to say. Because certain things in the Bible, they just they don't feel right to me. And, and what they're trusting in is in the authority of their own feelings, which is perhaps the most popular authority in our day. Now, we're going through judges right now, partially because of how much it reflects the society in which we live. Everyone knows the refrain at the end of judges, right? It could be the refrain of our culture. There was no king in Israel in those days. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Whatever they felt like. Everybody was their own authority. It shades everyone trusts in an authority, but there is one true authority over everyone, and that is God himself. Our ever-changing understanding of science is not your final authority. The God who created all science, who perfectly understands it as it actually is, he is our authority. Our ever-evolving philosophies that are, are trendy today and outdated tomorrow, they are not our ultimate authority. The God who has all true, unchanging wisdom, he is our ultimate authority. Our ever-fluctuating feelings, they're not your ultimate or final authority. I'm not saying that any of these things aren't important. I'm not saying that any of these things don't have some authoritative weight. I'm saying they're not our final authority. Your feelings are not your final authority. The final authority is the God who has loved you yesterday, today, and forever. And he has lovingly expressed his authority over you and me and everyone through his word. The word is everyone's authority, whether they acknowledge it or not. Isaiah 55 uh, makes this point beautifully. Isaiah 55, verses 10 and 11. You'll be familiar with part of this. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, they soak into the ground, and they make it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return empty, it will accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. In other words, God says, I authoritatively speak and my word doesn't fail. In anyone's life, even in the lives of those who reject it, for there it becomes a word of judgment that accomplishes his justice. The word of God is everyone's authority. And one day everyone will see and recognize that. Philippians 2 in verse 10 declares the day comes when at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess in heaven on earth and under the earth that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The word is everyone's authority. Everyone will see that. The good news of the gospel shades is that you don't have to wait to that day to see that. You're hearing God's word today. Don't arrogantly reject it. Humbly submit to it. And I'm not asking you to do that begrudgingly. All right, Jonathan, I'm backed into a corner. Scripture's God's word. I don't like it, but I'll submit to it. It's not the picture. We humbly submit to the word of God, not begrudgingly. No, we can do so joyfully. Why? Because of truth number four, the word is the greatest authority. And by greatest, I mean best. I mean goodest. 
That's, that's the word I wanted to use, but didn't want to get made fun of by a few of you who may or may not correct my grammar on occasion. That's fine. It's no big deal. The word is the greatest, the best. I'm going to say it anyway. It's the goodest authority. And I, I hope, I hope that at this point you can already see why. Because it's been plastered all over the scriptures that we've already read this morning. Scriptures like the last one I read to you, Isaiah 55, verses 10 through 11, shows us why God's word as our authority is the goodest, the best. It, it compared, it, it had a metaphor. Compared the word of God to rain. It falls waters the earth, and, and, and what does it make the earth do? Bring forth, sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. The rain falls and brings forth life. It gives life. God's word, he says, is like that. It's a good authority, the best, the greatest, the goodest because it is aimed at your good, it is aimed at giving you life. True life. Life that you have desired and sought in everything and anything but him. He aims to give you the very thing you're seeking. Full satisfaction of your heart forever. That's precisely what we read over Eloise, her little baby that we dedicated earlier, Psalm 16 and verse 11. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Full joy forever. You can't graph that. It goes eternally in every direction. It's what your heart is after, and it's found in one place, in him. And his word aims to give you that, to give you him. This, this is how the Bible talks about good, godly authority, that it is aimed at your life, giving you life. We, authority is like a curse word in our culture. We don't like it at all and can't imagine that it is good in any sense. And there's good reason for that. Have we not seen authority used to bring anything but life? whether in the culture writ large or within the church. Listen, listen, I want to read you my favorite passage that describes godly good authority and its aim. It, uh, it's, in, it's in 2 Samuel chapter 23. It's, it's in the last words of David. David, Israel's greatest king, he's dying. One of the things he does is he describes what good godly authority is supposed to look like what it's aimed at. These are David's words. 2 Samuel 23, verses 3 and 4. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me. So this is what God says. This isn't David's opinion. This is what God says to David about authority. When one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. Good, 
godly authority is envisioned as shining upon your life like the greatest day you can ever imagine that fills you with the maximum possible life. That is the authority that God exercises towards you and me through his word. It is made to shine on you like the most beautiful sunrise you have ever seen and to make your life flourish. God God does not exercise his authority like a wolf in sheep's clothing. He is not aimed at killing and consuming for himself. No, his authority is aimed at giving and feeding, giving you life. It's aimed at that because through his word, he gives you the greatest, nothing less than the best. He gives you himself. That is the goodness of his authority. He uses all of it to give you nothing less than the best himself. That's what he gives you through creation. Is that not what we've read through all of the verses that have talked about creation? What does he give you? Creation itself declares the glory of God. All of creation was made to give you nothing less than the best, to give you himself for the full satisfaction of your soul. And even more than creation, he has given us his word so that we might clearly see his glory supremely displayed in the gospel. So that you might see your creator is not far and withdrawn. No, your creator has come to you, a part of his rebellious creation. He's come to you and for you to take our rebellion upon himself on the cross, die the death that we deserved and rise to make a way into life. Like, like, do you see how he works all of his authority for his glory, which is our good? It's like, It's like that ice cream truck I told you about last week. If you weren't here last week, I told a story about the first time my daughter uh, saw an ice cream truck when she was four years old and how she was freaked out by it until I told her it had ice cream in it and then she fell in love with it. An ice cream truck declares its own glory, plasters pictures of it all over the side, goes around blaring music so that you and your house might know glory is passing by. Come and behold. Taste and see that the ice cream truck is good. It declares its own glory for your good. God is the ice cream truck. He has plastered pictures of his beauty all over creation, and he blasts forth his glory through his word so that you might come and be satisfied. He works all of his authority for his glory, which is your good beloved. Look into this word and see, see its good authority. And I pray, I pray that in seeing you will humbly and joyful.